Contracts, salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the business of sports with Andrew Brandt. Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the business of sports with Andrew Brandt. A little tax info for you this week. Yes, tax, but I was really intrigued as a lot of my listeners and followers and emailing me and Twittering me about this new tax law that does affect sports, potentially. Where the new tax law, you know, the President Trump's new tax law, changes a corner, a little corner of the tax law that allowed for sort of like-kind trades, which would include sports trades, and basically you didn't have to pay capital gains. But now, this New York Times article from March 19th really talks about this could apply to sports trades, and it would dramatically affect teams where teams would face capital gains taxes every time they exchanged or trade highly paid players. Think about all the highly paid players have been traded recently in all sports, including recently this year in football, players like J- J- uh, Jason Pierre-Paul just last week. This could have some massive effect. So what did I do? I found the best tax professor I could, at least the one quoted in the article, named Kerry Smoker from SUNY Brockport, a tax professor there, professor of accounting who has done consulting for the NBA Players Association and the NHL Players Association and brought her on. So, master class on tax law applicable to sports trades. Settle in. This will be fun. Without further ado, Professor Kerry Smoker... Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And it is a very interesting issue. Yeah, it's great to have your voice on this. And before we get to the issue, why don't you tell the listeners about yourself uh, and how you sort of got to be commenting on sports trades? Okay. Well, um, first of all, I am a lawyer by trade. Oh, me too. And uh, my Yeah. My first job out of law school, believe it or not, was with Arthur Anderson. Mm. And um, I happened to be there when Enron was taking place. And um, so at that point, although I had gained some experience in public accounting, I shifted gears. I uh, went uh, into law, practicing business law, and at the same time was invited uh, as an adjunct um, to teach a business law class. And it was there, actually, that I teamed up with another professor, a colleague of mine, who is in sports management. And he and I uh, began, he's got a tax practice for professional athletes. Um, and he and I began teaming up and writing articles, um, interesting articles on taxes and how they affect professional athletes. Mm. Uh, so, for instance, he and I both um, consulted for the NBA and NHL Players Associations when they uh, were up against a jack tax mm-hmm. in the state of Tennessee that they felt was unconstitutional. And, in fact, uh, we did explore the issue. We wrote a journal article on it, and um, that tax uh, was since repealed. Uh, and we believe it was because it was unconstitutional. So... Um, these issues are really exciting because oftentimes as a tax professor, you go into a classroom and you think that it's, you know, might boring filling out forms and <laughs> right. debits and credits. But when you see how it really affects, um, you know, real life things, including sports, 
um, I think that's when it really interests people and especially my students and, and I love it. So yeah. And fun. speaking of interesting, interesting people, I just got interested in something that I didn't even call you to talk about, but you mentioned it. So before we, uh, before we talk about a curveball with the tax law, I'm going to give you a curveball on the podcast Okay. because you mentioned this jock tax and your successful arguments against it in the state of Tennessee with the hockey and basketball. But we, I, hear about jock taxes all the time in all states. Not all states, but a lot of states. In fact, right. so, uh, I'm coming to you from Philadelphia, where I know there's a jock tax here, and players, as I understand it, go to play for a percentage of their season and are taxed for that, which seems unfair and, as you said, unconstitutional compared to other occupations that come in and out of these cities. Right. And um, so the interesting issue is, you know, until uh, until there's like widespread questions about a state's, um, you know, ability to assess these kinds of taxes, it really is a matter of perhaps the associations appearing before each of the state legislatures and exploring exactly how it is that those taxes are being assessed and whether it's being assessed in a fair manner or whether it's being assessed in such a way that um, it is unconstitutional. Hmm. And it has to do with um, a state's power to tax income and not do it in such a way. And the argument that, you know, was made is that the way it was being assessed in Tennessee, for instance, really would leave some players with lower salaries um, playing a game and actually having a loss per game hmm. because of the jock tax that they had to pay um, for having a game uh, in the state of Tennessee. Would that have been taxed, for instance, in NBA or NHL seasons, 82 games, and they played, I don't know, pick a number, however many games. I guess you're talking about NHL with, uh, with the Nashville team. Mm-hmm. three, four games, so what is that, one twentieth? I mean, how how was that being assessed? So it was being assessed as a, a, a very hefty number per game. Mm. Um, and so basic, and there was a cap, though, but the issue being then, if you were a player in Tennessee, the maximum that you would pay, even though you played, you know, numerous games in Tennessee you would pay a maximum amount of tax. So, so you would spread that tax bill over all of the games that you played in Tennessee, and you'd have a per-game amount of tax. Hmm. But take a player, for instance, from New York, travels down to Tennessee. How many games does he play in Tennessee? Maybe, you know, one or two. Right. And he's being assessed to this heavy tax, a flat tax. And it's being assessed only over only those two games. So if you look at the taxes that he's paying per game, it's going to be significantly more than the player from Tennessee that was able to allocate the maximum tax that he pays over all of his games in Tennessee. And you were able to change um, that. So were you really able to fight into- that successfully? Well, we actually um, provided counsel mm-hmm. um, with ammunition, and they had a special hearing before that legislature, and they were successful because it was very quickly followed by a repeal of that tax. Wow. So I would say, yes, it was a successful argument. <laughs> 
I would say yes also, and I would I have a lot of agents and sports lawyers that listen to this, and I would say you may be getting some calls based on what you just told okay, me great. about your efforts. <laughs> well, I consult with um, ASP uh-huh. Tax Consulting, so we would be very happy to see if we can help people. So. Okay. Switching to the issue at hand, the article um, in the New York Times ironically, or maybe not so ironically, came out right as President Trump was welcoming the World Series champion, Houston Astros, Mm -hmm. last week. And one of the people that was the chief tax writer on the new tax bill is a big Astros fan from that area of Texas named Kevin Brady. But as the article says, what Trump did not mention about Brady is that he helped draft this tax that could be a new tax on the Astros and all other franchises. So I'm just going to read mm-hmm. you what it says and what my understanding of, the, of it is, and then ask okay. you to elaborate and extrapolate okay. and interpret for us non-tax lawyers. It says the law okay. changed a corner of the tax code that mostly applies to farmers, manufacturers, and other businesses that until recently could swap certain assets like trucks and machinery tax-free. But by adding a single word to the newly written tax code, that word being real, R-E-A-L, in quotes, the law now allows real estate swaps to qualify for that special treatment. And now my words, it seems that that real estate is potentially applicable to trades of humans in sports. So I'll just leave it at that and let you see how much was right, wrong, and where we go with that. Okay. So first of all, just to give you a little bit background uh, about 1031, it's called 1031 like-kind exchanges. Okay. And um, the intent behind 1031 was, suppose that you had two um, businesses and they wanted to swap um, property. So, so we'll start with real estate because real estate can qualify for a like-kind exchange. Right. So the rule is uh, if you have property that you've used in a trader business or that you hold for the production of income, okay, that, that could qualify if you trade it for what's called like-kind property. So I could trade my real estate building and land for your real estate, uh, which could even be vacant land that you hold as investment property. And when we swap, we would be able to do that. But even though I just disposed of an asset, and even though I normally would calculate a gain or a loss on that asset that I just disposed of, Mm -hmm. 1031 would allow me to defer recognition of any gain or loss. I would not recognize that gain or loss right now when I disposed of my land. Now, what it would do is it would say that I would eventually recognize the gain or loss on my original track of land when I sell, when I cash out, Um, my new property that I now own. Hmm. So does that make sense? It's almost like we do a trade. I know that I may have had a gain because I got rid of property and we know we have a gain because maybe what you gave me 
was worth more than what I originally paid for my original track of land. Right. So maybe I made a lot of gain on the deal, but because it qualified for a 1031 exchange, I don't have to recognize that gain right now. I okay. See. And I think the public policy reason behind this was if we did uh, have to recognize our gain or loss on this trade, we would have to come up with cash to pay the taxes that are now mm-hmm. due. And if I had to come up with that cash and I don't have it, I'm cash poor. Right. Well, I'm cash poor. That's why I didn't buy your land to begin with. And that's why we were going to trade. And we want people to trade properties when it's going to result in people making more productive use of the properties that they own. Okay. So, uh, with so taking it out of, I'm sorry to interrupt, taking it out of, we haven't gotten to the sports context yet, but as, as you mentioned, you trade a a truck and trade a a machine and the other person trades two trucks and no machine or whatever it is. You're saying yeah. there's there's so no it, tax resultant from that well, because we okay. encourage generally generally generally. So as long as it's a truck for a truck and they've got these uh, rules about classifications and whether things right. I'm sure they do qualify as like kind. So truck for a truck, machine for a machine. As long as it's a pure trade with nothing else thrown in, then the rule would be. Don't recognize any gain or loss, even though you just disposed of an asset. Okay. Now, what if I trade a truck to you, but you give me a truck in cash Mm. in return? Now, there may be some gain that I do recognize. And the rule is this. I calculate how much gain I just realized when I got rid of my truck. But I, I only see. recognize that gain up to the cash or non-like kind property that I receive from you. I see. So, and, and why I mention that is because uh, once upon a time, it might have been that you might trade one player just for another player. Right. But more and more in recent years, you would see somebody trading players, but then also throwing some cash or some other benefits into the deal. So, okay, let's just acknowledge from the get-go that when it's come to baseball or other professional sports that follow suit with baseball, there seems to always be special rules that apply. Um, And so how the IRS specifically was treating um, any gain recognition on 1031 uh, is not as clear, but but I will say this. So originally 1031 was truck for a truck, land for land, um, machine for a machine. Right. What was not clear was uh, back in 1967, <laughs> um, the uh, Major League Baseball said, well, wait a minute. We've got some business assets here. We've got players. And if we trade a player for a player, does that qualify for a 1031 exchange? And because it was not clear, they were asking the IRS for the IRS's position on this. And the IRS did issue a revenue ruling. And what they said was, 
Well, of course. You know, it's a you're trading a man for a man. Mm-hmm. That's a 1031. But if it was a man for a bus, that would not qualify. Now, some people, uh, some professionals, attorneys, perhaps some accountants, might disagree, and they might say that the IRS took a position that n- not everybody would support going back to that 1967 decision. And the reason is this. Um, what you're trading is you don't own the man like a machine. Mm-hmm. It's not the man for a man that you're trading. You're actually trading your right to enforce his contract for the right to enforce another player's contract. Right. You're, you're trading contracts. And uh, so there is some argument that that was not ever intended to be a 1031 exchange. And yet the IRS did issue this revenue ruling 67-380, basically saying that they were going to give 1031 treatment to um, trading players' contracts. And that was back in 1967. That was back in 67. So um, let me say now, so this is how we've been operating. This is how we've been doing business for 50 years now. And they gave uh, the similar treatment to the NFL very clearly, Mm -hmm. other leagues. So um, 50 years, this is how business has developed in sports in the United States. And I would uh, venture to say, uh, living in a house where, um, you know, there's a a lot of enthusiasm (laughs) for soccer, my understanding is they don't trade the way we do. Um, my understanding is they're more likely to say, I'm done with this player. I don't want him anymore. So in the contract, maybe, there is a, a cost I pay to cancel the contract. Mm-hmm. So I am getting rid of that player, player A, and I am negotiating to get player B. So the team actually is not negotiating with another team. The team is basically uh, paying to sever its contract with its player, and then it's negotiating a brand-new contract with a new player from another team, and that player is negotiating a severance of the contract with his team, yeah. his original team. You know, it's um, interesting that so, you talk about that example. There, uh, This is kind of my expertise. There, the business of sports has changed so much since mm-hmm. 1967, and that applies to trades, as you just yeah. indicated, and this is what the focus of this this issue is, these like-kind trades, player for player, are kind of a thing of the past. What's happening, yeah. especially in basketball and in baseball, especially the NBA and Major League Baseball, is that we talk about tradable assets. So yes. people will trade away a player making five, ten, twenty million dollars simply, simply to dump that salary. And yes. in exchange for dumping the salary, they'll get assets in return, which may be yes. undervalued now, second round picks in basketball, low round picks in baseball, prospects in baseball. Right but have great value later on. And that's right. And this idea of money for uh, trades are not about personnel anymore. 
They're not. They're not about who's good, who won the trade. It's all about business. And as I said, I'm in Philadelphia where they traded away tons of assets just to get these players and build from scratch. And now they're doing well. But you're right. We're saying the same thing. So how, how has it been treated since? And now what is the change in the law that is at issue? Right. So the big issue, um, first of all, is that uh, very quickly in the last two months of 2017, we saw a new tax bill go through. Right. Uh, and when that tax bill was passed and it, um, many of the provisions, such as this one that we're discussing, became effective immediately 1-1-2018. Right. And one of the provisions was that 1031 exchanges were no longer going to apply when you trade a truck for a truck or equipment for equipment and definitely, <laughs> presumably, not a player's contract for a player's contract because the new law says that 1031 exchange treatment where you defer gain, you don't recognize the gain now, only applies to real estate deals. Hmm. Okay. And real estate, you know, as an attorney, you're well aware, real estate is land and anything attached to it, right? A building. Real property. um, Right. 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 So. So that's um, the only area for the like-kind exchanges as of this new bill. That's, that's right. And the, and yet when uh, major league baseball immediately raised this issue um, with with congressmen, uh, they seemed to, you know, their reaction was, oh. <laughs> so in my opinion, they definitely were not thinking about sure. the ramifications, except that by eliminating a lot of these 1031 qualifying transactions, they were raising a huge amount of revenue and they needed to do that in order to pass the new bill because they had to make sure that whatever costs uh, the bill was going to um, incur for the federal government, it was going to be paid for by revenue. So it had to be cost neutral. And so raising this revenue by eliminating 1031 exchanges was definitely part of um, the deal in making sure that the bill would get through. So have the Astros baseball in general approached congressmen and congresswomen? Where does this stand now? We recognize that this was not anticipated. This was not talked about. This just happened. But where are we with trades at this point? So where we are is, I I really believe where we are is... um, sudden chaos. Right. Uh, because my understanding is that Major League Baseball, they have a, you know, a lot of lobbyists who are already working on this issue. On the other hand, uh, my understanding is that this confusion has not necessarily curtailed trades thus far. But the issue now is unless the law changes, so that somehow baseball continues 
to be exempt from this gains treatment. Unless and until that happens, now any trade that's being done is going to be subject to potentially a gains tax. We need to compute what that gain is. Right. And in order to compute your gain, you have to, when you get rid of player A and you want to know the gain that you are, or the loss, on getting rid of disposing of player A, what you need to do is you need to compare the total fair market value that is coming in your door, which is the fair market value of player B that Mm. you just secured in the trade, along with any other benefits that came in the door, right? Right. You're going to compare that amount with what we call your adjusted basis. Um, Normally, that would be what you originally paid for player A, okay? But here's the further, so, so the first complication is, how do we all agree on what the fair market value is of right. that incoming player B? And you already, you know, clearly explained the concerns there. Uh, it's not necessarily what you're paying for the three minor league guys, but really what you're doing is hedging your bets that in the future, sure. these players are going to be good. Okay, so do you consider... Uh, present value, okay, when you're thinking about fair market value, is it just what you're paying for them, but I don't know that what you're paying for them in a limited market, the league, is necessarily reflective of what their fair market value really is that they bring to the team. Mm -hmm. Uh, In any case, um, we could all have different opinions on this. And the IRS needs to act very quickly in giving us some guidance so that we're all consistent because the big issue there is not only is there going to be difference between leagues and how they're measuring fair market value, but there could be differences between teams within the leagues. And we need some consistency. We need some guidance. And we need to do it, I think, quickly because – you can't, you can't know whether you're engaging in a good business deal unless you know the after-tax cost. Absolutely. I mean, right? to follow yeah. up my example, today in the NFL, the, the great defensive lineman for the New York Giants named Jason Pierre-Paul was traded mm-hmm. to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for what amounts to about a third-round pick. Now, You can look at that. You can judge it. Okay, is he worth a second-round pick? Is he worth a fourth-round pick? But then all the financials. You have the the Giants getting rid of, I don't know, $40, $50 million of future salaries. You have the Bucks taking on $40 million of future salaries. You have this accounting method in the NFL that is foreign to every other sport and every other business which is right. salary cap, where the Giants are left with $15 million on their cap. That's not cash. Right. That's not paid. Right. That's leftover accounting. So, right. good God, how would you judge right. a trade like that? And then, yeah. and then what, I, what is very clear is what you put in the books for accounting purposes, you, you, you put cost. Okay, right. So you're going to measure a player on your balance sheet, the contract at cost. But that 
we, we have to make sure that we know whether that cost really is reflective of fair market value. And I had a discussion with somebody yesterday about these issues. And, you know, so one of the things that I, I said is, okay, let's say this. I'm a manager or an owner of a team and I'm sitting down, you're an owner or manager of a team and we're deciding whether or not to engage in a trade. Do we really sit down and compute fair market value and then say, well, no, aren't there things like war uh, and different analytics and metrics that are being used? So you guys are, you know, no one is making these decisions based on um, a fair market value number, you're basically doing it on a a metric that's unique to the league. uh, And maybe you're even using different metrics, right? So. Yeah. I mean, listen, there's statisticians, they're analytics people now in these trades where it used to just be baseball people or football people or basketball people. You're right. That's all part of it. But I've never heard of a tax accountant being part of these trades. And what you're telling me is maybe that that is is a possibility here. So I guess what's more likely that teams are going to have to start taking this into account with trades or right. that somehow or, this has changed, that, that somehow the, the or, law yeah. excludes sports. Right. Or, or, or will this change the business of baseball? or football right will we keep trading or will we just cash out because here's the other complication okay remember uh if i bought a car for 500 bucks and then i'm lucky enough to sell it for 1200 bucks my gain is the 1200 that i bring in my door minus the 500 that i originally paid so have a gain of 700. Right. Here's the problem. These player trades have qualified for 1031 treatment since 1967. So presumably maybe I traded A for B, then B for C, and so, so on, all the way down to Z. Well, if something qualifies for a 1031 exchange, then there's a special rule as to what your basis is in the new property that you own. So when I want to know whether I have a gain or a loss on a player when I get rid of him, I don't compare the value that I'm bringing in uh, to what I originally paid for him. 1031 gives me a special rule Hmm. as to what I say the basis is. And you know what the basis is? Whatever the basis is in the player you owned previously. Hmm. And what is your basis in him? Well, it was whatever the basis was in the player that you traded him for, right? Right. So we might have to go back all the way 50 years and say, my basis in player Z is calculated based on all the prior players going all the way back to player A. Hmm. Because once you say that something's a 1031 exchange, there's a special formula to determine what your original basis will now be in that new player that you now own. And, th- and you need to know that because when you get rid of him, you're going to compare that number 
to what you are basically uh, exchanging him for, selling him for. I hope that makes sense. It does. Being, it does. But this so is we, incredibly wieldy for for this to potentially be be real, right? It really is. And so the best example that I can give you is um, there have been occasions where, say, an entity uh, historically has been tax exempt and they're not tracking appropriately um, an attribute in their mm-hmm. assets. Now, all of a sudden, they're no longer tax exempt. Now they're taxed and they turn to the IRS and they say, but I haven't been tracking this correctly. And the IRS might say, well, we're going to let you grandfather in. And the rule is your basis in your assets is going to be the fair market value of them as of this day. So my question is, are they going to have to give us a rule that now 1031 is gone for these trades? Are you going to tell me what my basis is in each of my players? Because yeah. I'm not sure that I, I could tell you that exact number. Yeah, and where do you go with the I mean, this is all, will you go with the basis for where the player was drafted, where he, what his rookie contract was, his second contract, right. his third contract, his and contract also, to come next year? Yeah. Right. And then also, um, let's not forget another cost of doing business and and I think you referenced this earlier, but it varies between the leagues, is the luxury tax. And that's yes. not a tax that you're paying to a state or to the IRS. That's a tax that, uh, am I correct, that you're paying to the league? Yeah, uh, to a so, fund that supports yeah. the lower-ranked revenue teams. And right. like you said, many owners done, now are saying, we don't want to be over that tax, and that's happening a lot in baseball. Right. Yeah. And that is affecting trades and and stuff by itself. So, um, but, you know, that luxury tax, the rule for um, baseball might be different in how it's assessed for NFL. So in one case, and and I'm trying to remember which is which, but in one case, when one player's salary goes over the cap, you owe a luxury tax. Mm -hmm. But in the other league, when it's the team's total salaries go over the cap, then you owe a luxury tax. So the question is, whenever a team owes a luxury tax to its league, isn't that part of the cost that you allocate to acquiring your players? Sure. And how do you allocate it? So in one league, do you allocate it just to the one guy? Yes, I would say so, that his salary was over the cap. But in the other league, when you allocate that luxury tax, are you going to allocate it pro rata to all the players? Because in total, all of their salaries added up and exceeded the cap. Yeah. So, so many questions. I mean, this year alone, so you have questions. some teams that are specifically getting under the tax. I know the Portland Trailblazers, they were mm-hmm. insistent, as talked about in this New York Times piece, about getting under the tax. And did so. And one of the teams right. that was taking on players of teams wanting to get under the tax was LeBron's Cavaliers, which made some trades that pushed them way over the threshold. And right. some people are wondering, you know, would a team like the Trailblazers need to pay tax on the money they avoided 
as much as a team that went over the t- trade threshold, tra- tax threshold. Again, mm-hmm. we're just talking about all these permutations, unless this is somehow back to the way it was. Right. Uh, do we go back to the way it, it was? And if not, please immediately tell us, you know, what are the rules that we're now going to operate under? Because um, I, apparently trades are going on business as usual, yes, but I don't are. think that people know the bottom line cost that they might be paying uh, when they engage in these trades now. So theoretically, um, so when these is, trades are going on since one one eighteen, would it be the the New York Giants and and the trade that I just discussed about today? Would they get a bill in next April, next January, or whatever it was about? They'd have the trade they just made. Re- they're going to report this on the tax return. That covers the the fiscal year mm. for which the trade occurred. Okay, so um, part of what you fill out. So player contracts are considered what we call twelve thirty one trader business assets. And when you sell these business assets, there's a tax form that you include with your income tax return, where you're reporting the sell, the sale of these assets. The, the date that it, or exchange, the date of the sale, how long you held that asset, the player uh, contract, and then computing the gain or loss and netting it all out so that you, you know the bottom line result. Wow. So that's another thing that I want to just point out. Um, when you sell these business assets now, if you are going to end up with what we call this net uh, 1231 trader business gain, then that's where people are coming and saying it's going to have capital gains treatment. Um, And on the other hand, if you end up with what we call this net 1231 loss, that is going to actually be an ordinary loss. Um, And both of those are preferable treatments. So if you've got what's treated as a long-term capital gain, uh, that may end up being taxed at a, uh, well, actually, I'm going to take that back. That would be for individuals. Um, but for businesses, I guess there is no special rate. So, you know, we're reporting it as the sale of business assets, but it's all going to be ordinary income or ordinary loss. It's yeah. going to offset the other revenue on your return. But the point is you'd have to show it. You have to show it. You yeah. have to show it. And uh, and then you know, somehow value it. In the, <laughs> right? Exactly. exactly. Or would, they, would it be the IRS? Show, you just saying you traded this player, got that player, and then the IRS does it? Or you would do it? You do it. You do it. They check it. And if they want to do, and they probably do an audit, yeah. they might look, take a second look at this, and they might say, we disagree with the fair market value that you're assessing on this player, <laughs> or we disagree with the the cost basis or other basis that you're reporting when you acquired this player. So we're disagreeing with your gain or loss computation. Wow. And so, as you said, business um, is going on. Teams are trading right and left. Right. It's happening. Yeah. And there's no right. change. People aren't. People aren't deterred from trading by this, and I'm not sure a lot of them even know. Right. Now, uh, the IRS right now is not commenting. Okay. Um, My understanding is that 
uh, few Congress people have commented, but maybe have commented that they really didn't realize, of course. Um, you know, the ramifications of this. So what you might see is that either the IRS is going to immediately come out and um, issue a revenue, well, not immediately, but issue a revenue ruling, I hope as soon as possible, that just clarifies right. what it is that all of the teams in all of the leagues are, are supposed to be doing. Um, right. And yeah. for the record, it, it does look in the New York Times reported that they tried to reach out to Senate Finance Committee Chairman Orrin Hatch, mm. who did mm-hmm. not return a recall or request for comment whether he would be inclined to support a bill to change the law for sports teams. And neither did uh, Mr. Brady, who I referred to in the Astros celebration, uh, who's mm-hmm. House Ways and Means Committee chairman. So whether uh, they thought about it or not before, they certainly are thinking about it now or are being alerted to it. They definitely are. And, yeah, uh, and how these bills go forward is usually they're generated first initially out of the House Ways and Means. I see. And once they draft something, it goes to the Senate Finance Committee, and they read it, and then they draft something of their own. And once they've got something, it may go to a joint committee, and once they're done with it, then it would go in front of, um, it would go in front of the, a Congress for the appropriate votes. Now, if there so was a change, quickly, would it be limited? Yeah. I mean, I'm asking, would it be limited to sports teams, or would there be some kind of broader change that includes sports well, teams? Yeah, so that that is, uh, uh, if you ask me, that's a question of, of equity, okay? And right. so here's what I would say. I, if you're going to go back and say 1031 exchanges apply now only to real estate, oh, and by the way... <laughs> <laughs> professional sports contracts, your small mom and pop right. store is going to be very upset that we're coming up with revenue by eliminating what previously was a tax benefit that was helping these small businesses. Okay. So you're going to have, um, I think that's a question of, of equity. On the other hand, is this going to be something like, Okay, so we're all aware that there is an exemption for sports mm-hmm. under monopolies, right? Uh, whether it's a monopoly, there's an exemption in place. That's a special rule for sports. So um, we might not call baseball a 1031 exchange again, but is it possible that somebody says, well, the, these are, you know, American, an American pastime and a long honored tradition. Right. And we're not going to recognize gains and losses, but they're not going to call it 1031. Hmm. Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, you remind me of or, uh, going back yeah. to like 1922 with a federal baseball case in baseball where baseball was exempt from antitrust law because basically it was seen as a game. I'm not a business. Yeah. And like you said, yeah. America's pastime in this love of the sport and even justice yeah. is and, waxing uh, poetic about the, the, the diamond, etc. Yeah. And uh, I even saw a comment on the New York Times article and somebody said, wait a minute, why are these, the, why are players like, why is there gain or loss? And, you know, you're selling business assets. I thought baseball wasn't a business. There you go. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> 
you know, so there is this like confusion out there because uh, we've got these rulings that it's not a business, but as we all know, it's certainly run like a business, and it certainly has oh, the, uh, the, 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 yeah. Multi, multi-billion dollar business. Exactly. There's no and question about that. we all know that, that it's, it's the bottom line that's going to drive all of these decisions. Yeah, so it is a, it's an interesting issue. It's critically important. I don't think the IRS can delay this uh, for too long, and it remains to be seen what is going to be done by whom and when. And uh, maybe they'll rethink 1031 altogether because maybe they'll say we just created a huge headache. But how then do you balance? um, How do you make the new bill cost neutral that it pays for itself? Yes. Over, you know, an extensive period of time. Well, we'll have to have you on for part two of this because there's obviously going to be more to this. It can't stand uh, as it is now. I, yeah, I, I you know, I, I'm definitely following this. Um, my colleague, uh, Alan Provojewski, is, is definitely on this with me. And it raises a lot of issues um, that we've discussed. And, you know, just does the business of baseball, mm-hmm. does the business of football, does that all change? I, I don't know. Or are, are, are these teams and these leagues so used to conducting business in a certain way that this is just the way it's going to be done? It's going to be fascinating because, as you mentioned, these businesses change very slowly. We have mm-hmm. seen this kind of move to Moneyball, this move to uh, revamping teams from the bottom up, trust the process, losing on purpose for years at a time staying away from mediocrity and now we have this another layer which no one has thought about which is sort of what about trades what about tax oh everyone loves to think it's all about winning and losing but business and money does play a part so yeah and may i just say um without being without being too uh cynical um real estate still qualifies if it's trade or business or investment held Hmm. for the production of income and what kind of assets do you think most congressmen uh, <laughs> are, are leaders? What kind of assets do you think they own? It's Real not estate. trucks and machines. Yeah. Yeah. And that's still 1031 and, huh. and that's it. Yeah. That's it. Not players. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Certainly not players, if you <laughs> ask me. <laughs> Well, we're going to follow this. This has been a great uh, accounting and tax lesson about an issue that's uh, just been uncovered, at least from my viewpoint. Uh, Great stuff from Carrie Smoker, accounting professor at SUNY Brockport. She has done uh, consulting for the NBA PA, the NHLPA, and and obviously been successful with that. Carrie, great to have you. Really, really interesting stuff. I'm sure our our listeners will love it. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. And I so appreciate you having me. I obviously get very passionate about this, and uh, I I love talking with you about it. Love your passion. Love your information. Thanks again. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And now for our new feature. It's been around a couple podcasts, but you can call in 484-416-5654. Leave me questions, voicemail. I'll pick one or two every week and answer them, and we have one this week. So we'll go right away to our first question of the week. It's the only one I'll answer on this podcast, but a lot more coming up soon. 
So let's go to another Andrew. Hey, Andrew. I had a question about the Teddy Bridgewater contract, what your thoughts were on that. It's reported he only got 500000 guaranteed um, in that contract. Seems really low. When we watched him play, he seemed like a great quarterback. Thought that he would have been able to get at least a decent contract. What do you see happening with him? Um, do you think his agent was taking the town, or do you think that that was fair market value for him? Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. And this guy, Teddy Bridgewater, has been kind of a chain reaction mover for so many quarterback decisions in an unfortunate way. His horrific injury in that summer, I believe, of summer of 2015, where obviously he had this terrible injury and the Vikings didn't want to stand pat with their backups and made that trade, which the Eagles leveraged, to send him Sam Bradford for a one, all related to Teddy Bridgewater, and then, of course, Bradford and Keenum and all these quarterbacks ahead of Bridgewater in the time since. Then he becomes a free agent, and lo and behold, the Vikings move away from him. Uh, comments from Mike Zimmer at the league meetings talked about, well, he wasn't as good as he thought he was medically, and some concerns in the postseason physical and then with the with the Jets deal, I saw it, and I originally thought, okay, they signed McCown for 10, maybe they paid him 5, and we'll look at that. And again, I'm talking about guaranteed, and as you mentioned, Andrew, only 500000 guaranteed, which to me, you walk away from. You can walk away from. There seems to be a breaking point when in guaranteed money, how much teams are willing to walk away from, but 500000 is way below that breaking point, especially for billionaires owning the uh, Jets and especially a team that probably will take a top five or whatever they are now, top six or top three, I'm sorry, quarterback in the draft. So Bridgewater's days, I don't think, look very strong in security. Now, whether his agent was taken to town, whether he could have gotten a better deal, everything's negotiable. It tells me, Andrew, he didn't have much of a market, if any. This is the kind of deal you do when you don't have a market. This is the kind of deal when you have one team. And that team was the Jets. It certainly wasn't the Vikings. And who knows who else was out there. But people were scared off by the medical. And you go back to that unfortunate injury on a practice field where his leg, people were saying it was the most horrific thing they've ever seen that were on the field that day. Feel bad for him. But Teddy Bridgewater probably only had the Jets. And 500000 guaranteed, they can move on from that if they want to. And my sense is, come August, we may see him on the waiver wire. Thanks, Andrew. You can leave these questions, as I said, at 484-416-5654. I'll answer them on a future podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt. Listen to the podcast, Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, RossTucker.com, wherever you hear your podcast. Give it a good rating, if you will. I'll be back next week with another edition of The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Thanks for listening to The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft Podcast, all at RossTucker.com or wherever podcasts are found.